that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your host, John Viola. Very, very excited to be with many of my great friends today. Obviously, from the other side of the booth, the one and only Stephanie Longo, our associate producer, who has been working with me to set up this exciting episode and calling in from their respective homes, the one and only Ms. Rosella Rago and my main man, the notorious P.O.B., Patrick O'Boyle. So, guys, really good to be together again. It's been a long time, Ro. We haven't had you on in a while. No, I know. It's kind of crazy. I'm glad to be back. Though. I know. We miss you. I miss past tangents, most of all. What? Thanks, Ro. <laughs> that makes me feel loved, special, and appreciated. <laughs> Merry Always. Christmas to you, too. What was that? Baby Got Back? You should play that for the second. <laughs> Baby Got Back. <laughs> Baby Apolitan. Yeah, what would Baby Got Back be a Neapolitan? I don't even want to know. <laughs> wow, that's a wow moment. What would Baby Got Back be in Alfredo Bochette, the Neapolitan, real classic Neapolitan? Why don't you do a CD? Pat covers the greatest hits of the 80s, 90s, and today. Um, what would it be in Molay's? That's a better question. I'm, I'm hanging up right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, we should do a whole episode, you know, like of songs translate into Molay's. We'll do a fundraising CD. What were those CDs that used to come out? The hits? Wow, that's the 80s or now? Yeah, 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 yeah that's that. Why don't we do Wow, not, Wow, that's the 80s in Molay's? <laughs> Only you. I mean, what else are we going to talk about? <laughs> we got to warm up a little bit. <laughs> there. Don't worry. We got an interesting topic to talk about today because we have a very special guest that we're all really excited to talk about. Right now, late July 2021, as we uh, put this show out there on the air, and it's exactly 65 years ago this week that a tragedy occurred in American waters that impacted America, Italy, and the Italian-American community in an incredible way. And uh, we're talking about the sinking of the Andrea Doria, the ocean liner, the Andrea Doria, July 25th, 1956. It was international news and stayed in the consciousness of both countries for a very, very long time. As a matter of fact, growing up, I remember my grandfather had a medicine cabinet in his house that apparently had come from the ship that had broken off from the ship and somebody had brought to him because it sunk off of U.S. waters. And amongst the many Italians in the international passenger list was one Pierrette Domenica, uh, today Pierrette Domenica Simpson. And we're very happy to welcome her to the Italian American podcast. She is a filmmaker, an author, and uh, a leading advocate for the true story of the sinking of the Andrea Doria. So Pierrette, welcome to the Italian American podcast. I am so delighted to be here. I've listened to several episodes, and I think you guys are amazing at championing uh, Italian pride 
and giving us so much information and connecting all of us heart to heart. So thank you so much for including me. I really appreciate it. That was very kind. That's much appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. And I think today you're going to be the professor because I don't think any of us are necessarily expert in this topic. I am not an expert in this topic. And one of the reasons is as much as I've read about it, I still don't understand how it happened. Right. I mean, I understand like how the Titanic, I mean, I'm not trying to be cliche issue, but like probably I would guess the Titanic was the most famous sinking of a ocean liner previous to the Andrea Dory. But I, I can't understand. And I, I know Pareto go into it, how, how it happened because it should not have happened. If what I've read is correct. You make a great point. When we, start to talk about the exact occurrence on that night, uh, I think you'll find it's it's a different set of circumstances than something like the Titanic. And it does seem like it's a tragic and avoidable occurrence. So Brett, first of all, why do you have a French name? Well, that's a good question. I was born Piera Domenica Burzio in the Piemonte near Torino in a little village at the foot of the Alps, uh, not far from the French border. And that area used to be part of France. The Savoy Kings were there. So my grandparents and I left that village in 1956 and boarded the Andrea Doria so that I could meet my mother, literally, because she had left me to my grandparents when I was 15 months old. Wow. So that was my reason, our reason for boarding the Andrea Doria. It was our immigration to America. So I got to America. I met my mother, <laughs> kind of a, a different <laughs> meeting of one's parent, right? Sure. I uh, met my, my step family. I had a half sister and, and a stepfather. And um, my mother right away decided that I would be not Piera anymore. But Pierrette, and I asked her years later why she changed my name. And she said, boy, that really sounded more American to me. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. That's probably the reason, one of the reasons I became a French teacher. <laughs> Do you think that you were drawn to be a French teacher because Piedmontese is so close to French? Yeah, yeah. It was easier for you. Yeah, because I speak or I spoke. <laughs> I don't know how good I am now. Um, the Piemontese dialect, uh, which is French, Italian, and Celtic. Celtic? I didn't know that wow. one. Very different language. Very different. Like, nowhere else. <laughs> we usually ask Rosella to say stuff in her Malay's dialect from Maladibari. Can you give us a phrase in Piemontese? Oh, my God. I'm so glad that this is on someone else now. <laughs> <laughs> But say it say, again. Say it again. make it a stat. Whoa. Hello. How are you feeling? Whoa. Wow. Kind of sounds like when Rose says Malays. <laughs> I don't know why in my mind. <laughs> no, you know, Italy has like 2,000 different dialects when you think about it. Yeah. It's another gem in the Italian crown. Like you go from village to village and the food changes. And even in the same comune from frazione to frazione, the language changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's probably less than 40,000 of us left that speak Piemontese. That's it? And the one that I speak. And then, you know, like you said, move around a little bit and it's all different. That's pretty amazing. 40,000 is not a significant uh, amount for first language speaker or native language speakers. The North got hurt because 
they mm. received immigrants. They didn't lose them. Like if you go to a, a village in the south of Italy, everyone there has genetically been there for thousands of years. In the north now, it's such a hodgepodge that you don't have the consistency in the social fabric that everyone's speaking the same dialect. Yeah, that's really true. Local languages. The word dialect is not offensive when it's used correctly. Right. Neapolitan is a language with, with more dialects. Even within the city of Naples, it changes. You're absolutely right. But it's interesting. It's always interesting for us, I think, to talk about northern Italy and the immigration from there. And it's fascinating to see the sort of waves where they came because you have the earliest waves of immigration coming from places like Piemonte and uh, Liguria and Tuscany and coming to the United States. And then you have the massive southern wave in the arc of the Great Migration. But post-war, it is a sort of national immigration and you do get representation from all parts of post-war Italy coming over, like Pieretta and her family coming uh, in 1956. And so you came to meet your mother to emigrate here into Michigan, correct? Nearby Detroit. Correct. Mm-hmm. I'm near Detroit right now. Mm-hmm. And your your introduction to the United States was this tragedy on the Andrea Dory. I mean, you're a young child yes. and you're coming to meet your mother for the first time. I mean, I, I can't imagine a more overwhelming circumstance. Had you had you ever been on any kind of boat, plane, anything like that? I, I can't imagine you traveled <laughs> much before this. The only water that we knew was the river nearby where we did our laundry on rocks. We uh, scrubbed marijuana hemp sheets (laughs) on the rocks and carried them home through the fields. The reason why we never went near water, except for the laundry, or to to catch frogs and fry them for lunch. (laughs) That sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you live? I live near Detroit. In oh, shucks. Michigan. If we do a road trip, we'll stop. We'll bring the frog legs. Do you know how to make them? Uh, I'll learn. Yeah, learn. Find <laughs> out. When you call your cousins in Italy, that sounds... Did you, how did you serve them? Just like a little squeeze of lemon? Oh, gosh. I just remember my grandmother throwing these little cute things into a frying pan. And that was our lunch. Wow. But uh, she would not go near water because she was paranoid of water. Oh. Always. I don't know if it came from an ancestral DNA or something, but so that's very important when I tell you the story. (laughs) Keep that in mind, please, that my grandmother was paranoid of water. Wow. So so you grew up in Italy right on the cusp of the real change of the 50s and 60s and the economic miracle. And, you know, Pat calls it the Italy of Nutella, you know, these national brands and rye television and all these things that are going to change the country dramatically. But it sounds like your stories of washing laundry in the river or against rocks are the same stories that my great grandmother would tell. And she emigrated here in 1922. So, I mean, Italy being a place where you didn't get much social change until the post-war boom. So you had a very traditional Italian childhood then. I did. It was beautiful. It was uh, an idyllic village at the foot of the Alps called Pranzalito, as I said, outside of Torino. And uh, I had uh, three playmates. I went to a one-room schoolhouse. There were six of us. I was the only one in my grade. Uh, It was a true community. My grandparents uh, knew of no other community before they came to America. So when they decided that they would leave their community so that they could always be with me in America, it was the ultimate sacrifice. They left 
they left Italy, they left their homeland, they left their friends, they left their farm, they sold everything. Um, I left my my best friends, I left my my cat and my dog. I can't, wow. still can't talk about it without trembling. Wow. Um, we left everything and we put what we could in our trunks, huge trunks. And, and that scene won an award in our, our docu-film, by the way. And uh, we put them on the unsinkable Andrea Doria. We put them on the most beautiful ship in the world. And uh, I was really excited. My grandmother was so scared. And I kept thinking, why is she so scared? And I flew into the cabin. It was so beautiful. It was so exciting to do this. Now, I never wanted to come to America for many years. My mother would always write letters you have to come to America. You can't keep working on the farm all day. All of you are, you know, it's, it's not good. You come to America and uh, you don't have to cut up the cows and, and plow the fields and you can buy everything in the grocery store already washed and cut up and ready to eat. So we made the journey and um, my grandfather always wore his suit. He was so proud, always had his uh, briefcase because that's where he had everything to enter into America. Plus, I'm sure some funds. And um, my grandmother always had her purse with a few pieces of jewelry and uh, what was precious to not leave behind. So we had a, just a wonderful trip of eight days, um, except for one day, it was very rough. But the other days were idyllic. And we just kind of really learned to relax. <laughs> Beautiful ship that was called a floating art museum. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, You're leaving rural Italy with traditions in some cases that go back to medieval times yes your destination is detroit michigan which for the listener who's not necessarily a history or sociology student you're coming over in 1956 detroit is like america's most modern and forward-thinking city i guess then you know along with kind of la and the west coast but i mean you're talking about a city just booming from the auto industry post-war yeah very much sort of part of the atomic age of progress and convenience and American middle-class dream life, I think. Yeah. And you're going to come over on the unsinkable Andrea Doria, the ship built in Genova in 1951, really as much as an economic enterprise and a commercial enterprise, it was as much about the sort of pride in Italian industry post-war and the, and the resumption of the economy. So yeah. like it's, unfortunate infamous predecessor the titanic it's this ship labeled the unsinkable right everybody talks about this like you say it's a museum on the water it's a, a luxury liner it's bringing passengers it's all the modern technologies um i, I don't know why they always give out the title unsinkable it, it does not have a great track record but yeah you'd think after the titanic they'd just like stop putting that label on stuff yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hubris, right? That's a little bit hubristic, I think. Poking a finger into the eye of God. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and sure enough, we know where the story ends. So you get to Genova, you get on this boat, you're having an amazing trip. Tell us from a survivor's experience what happens in your personal experience before we get into the science of why on July 21st, 1956. 
uh, we were traveling, uh, like I said, on the floating art museum. I had never seen art before because I lived in a farmhouse with a light bulb hanging down from the, the ceiling and a black uh, wood burning stove. So this was like you're pointing out, John, just the incredible contrast from the life before. And the ship represented the uh, Renaissance of Italy from the ashes of World War II, right? So there was so much pride. I was excited. I made friends. My little friend in the swimming pool was Norma Di Sandro, who I will mention in a while. Um, and my grandmother couldn't believe that I got into a pool, but she actually let me get in water. Wow. <laughs> And I played with uh, Pat Mastincola, who was just a daredevil, and he was my age. So it was really a pretty tranquil trip. And I don't remember my grandparents being that nervous or, you know, anticipating anything um, that was to come. Because you're eight days into this at this point? Yes. Yeah. You're eight days into a nine-day trip that the initial shock is over. You're, you can see the finish line. Yes. In your recollection... Were the majority of the passengers Italian? Yes. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a huge immigrant class. Uh, I should say third class, which was mostly immigrants. And there was a second class and the, the first class with uh, a combination of people, including some very famous people. Um, do you know who Mike Stoller is by any chance? I don't. You don't. But I bet you know who Elvis Presley is. That I do. Okay. So do you know uh, Hound Dog? Sure, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Mike Stoller was on that trip, and he is one of the, the partners of Stoller and Lieber, who wrote the most famous songs uh, of the uh, 20th and 21st century. Wow. Yeah, so he, he was in second class. He and I be, have become good friends. He's in the docu-film. So he was not Italian. He and his ex-wife had gone to Italy on a royalty check from his hit song already back then, a hit song before Hound Dog, black denim trousers and uh, motorcycle boots, something wow. like that. So um, Mike was uh, one of the famous people on board. Um, there was Betsy Drake, ex-wife to Cary Grant. Uh, there was Ruth Roman. You heard about uh, probably Alfred Hitchcock's movie, Strangers on a Train, which was about three women who were completely panicked over their children's safety in an airplane crash. So that was kind of like a, a premonition of some sort. Um, there were very famous people on board, um, mayor of Philadelphia, uh, so it was not all Italians, John, but it was uh, a lot of Italians. It was the ship that carried many, many immigrants to the new world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recall for us that evening, July 25th, 1956, what, what happens? Okay. Well, let me start from the morning. The uh, fog was thick, 
very foggy day, our last day on the ocean. And um, the uh, horn blew, the foghorn blew every two minutes as prescribed by maritime law to alert other ships. So throughout the day, we just kind of felt uneasy, okay, hearing this, this foghorn every uh, two minutes. So we get to evening, we had our stroll on the deck, and then we had dinner, and then we were going to celebrate our very last night on board before reaching the new world. Can you imagine how nervous immigrants must have been? Mm. So my grandfather was in his cabin in um, third class. My grandmother and I decided we would celebrate, believe it or not, she was ready to let loose and dance in the social hall with me and uh, other immigrants. And uh, it was just very pleasant until we reached 11, 10 p.m. So 11, 10 at night, you say? Yes, yes. And the foghorns were still blowing. What happens? All of a sudden, just out of nowhere, we felt this tremendous jolt. The ship went up in the air on, on the right side, tilted towards center, went all the way to the left, wow. then back to center, but it didn't stay there. It went to the right. We were inclined to the point where maritime experts or naval engineers had never designed a ship to tilt. So we were listing at probably 16, 18 degrees from the beginning and then 20 degrees very fast. Inside the ship, we were hurled all over, you know, against walls, tables. Um, You know, we were sliding down to the right side, the starboard side, the furniture was uh, coming, rolling down um, our way and um, people were screaming, the lights were flickering on and off. We saw some, eventually some crew members coming, running by with their white uniforms all stained with oil. Then we started smelling terrible fumes of oils. And we just uh, screamed for a while, but amazingly, for Italians, we kind of settled down. My grandmother, who was very paranoid of (laughs) water and everything, actually tried so hard to not show her her fear, her... um, She didn't reflect the pandemonium that was going on. She held on to me. I held on to her. My grandfather, as I said, was down below. So we were alone, all injured some way or another. I I don't think I was or my grandmother, but most of us were. And uh, we stayed there until I can see my grandfather's eyes as I'm speaking to all of you right now coming through the deck doors into the social hall where we were, his eyes looking like he had seen a ghost. He had treaded through water in the hallways and tried to push his way up the stairs in complete panic and pandemonium down below. And guess what he was carrying? I'm going to guess his briefcase. 
his briefcase. So here he comes through the doors with his briefcase, his hat on, his pat legs rolled up to his knees because he had treaded through water. Now, a lot of people later on, we saw them with curtains around them. We saw them half naked. Um, but my grandfather decided he would get dressed, make sure he had his briefcase, and make sure to find us. So he joined us in the social hall. So then we made prayer circles. And we just prayed, Ave Maria, piena di grazie. And the meaning of, you know, now unto the hour of our death, amen, it was uh, never so meaningful, <laughs> never had that kind of meaning. And we just prayed over and over. Some of us had rosaries. We were trying to hold on to something so we wouldn't slip and hurt ourselves down the heavy list. And then miraculously, someone came through the deck doors and said, there are lifeboats that have arrived to save us. We still didn't know what had happened. People were, had been yelling Titanic, a, a boiler must have exploded, we must have hit rocks. You know, we didn't know anything. And so we thought, well, how are we going to get up the list and, and, and get out and, and board lifeboats? Anyway, we did. We made a human chain. We put our bags toward the banisters and we descended. Some people, unfortunately, let go and they slipped on the very slippery, oily and fog um, residue uh, of the deck and they hit the swimming pool, or severely injured, but most of us made it down to the lowest part of the ship. We got to the, the lowest part miraculously. And uh, I remember two foreign men, young men, were there with ropes lowering people down, the ones that they could manage to lower. Other people just either dove off the ship. Um, they did whatever they could. They, they climbed down ropes that uh, had covered the swimming pool. The captain had the foresight to throw those ropes over the side of the hull so that some people could go down like they did during the war. The soldiers would climb down those uh, rope, um, I don't know if you'd call it ladders. Uh, but anyway, some people came down that large rope ladder, we'll call it. Um, I was fortunate because I was nine. They tied a rope around my waist. There were lifeboats that were coming. Now, this, unfortunately, was when the fog had lifted and we had the light of the moon. So we could see what we were doing, basically. Now, the ship by this time, maybe it was around three or four in the morning, was listing so heavily that I could not see the lifeboat underneath the list. So as far as I knew, I was being lowered into the black ocean. Wow. And my grandparents were up above. And I was screaming for them, of course. And it was a miracle that they let my grandparents come down because as, you know, the law of the sea is, you know, children first. And uh, But I think they let them down because of their age. They were in their mid-50s. And I always thought, of, you know, them as being older, but <laughs> they were actually 20 years younger than I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> the Italian grandparents, they give off old from a very young age. Yes. yes. So... 
here was my grandmother coming down the rope on her own accord, not tied around her waist. She grabbed that rope. Guess what was in her hand? The purse. It was that purse. Okay. Um. My nonna can never let go of the purse. No. <laughs> no. I don't know if it is at all times convinced everyone's going to steal. I mean, that's exactly how I imagine my yeah. nonna navigating yeah. something like this. Yeah. Like purse in hand. Yeah. Yeah, well, this was so important to her, and she made it down with the purse, and and then one of her legs went into the ocean. She screamed, and then they pulled her in. So I had my grandma with me. Then we saw my grandpa coming down, my no-no, with his hat on, holding his briefcase. Got it. And coming down the rope by himself and into the lifeboat. And you think now, okay, we can take a breath, right? (sighs) Safe. No. The ship was listing so heavily, we thought it was going to roll over on us. And these very, very brave sailors from the Ile de France, the the French ship, French connection, maybe that's why I became a French teacher. (laughs) I was saved by the French. They had turned around in the ocean and in the fog to come and save us. And they saved 750 of us. Wow. So the sailors were rowing and it was like the ride from hell. There were soggy suitcases all over, broken beams. Anything you can imagine was floating on the ocean around us. And everybody was heaving. It was from the trauma, from the fatigue. And I can still smell the vomit from that horrible lifeboat. And it was a long ride. I I think it was about 45 minutes. So we get to the Ile de France and it looked like um, it had lights saying Ile de France at the top. It looked like a skyscraper. And you look up and you think, we're going to climb up that rope ladder. But we did. I must have had somebody behind me helping me because I can't imagine I did that by myself. So I get to the top and a French sailor pulls us in and says, bonsoir. And then there was a woman there and she was helping us in. My grandparents came up. I found out that woman (laughs) that was pulling us in and, and welcoming us was my Spanish teacher at Wayne State University in Detroit. I found out many years later when I was telling the story in Spanish she had been there. It's like everyone has some kind of connection to the Andrea Doria. Wow. So we were saved by the Ile de France. They were very, very good to us. Amazingly, the Stockholm discerned it was seaworthy, and they sent lifeboats to us and saved about 500 of us. Sizzling summer entertainment from Italy is on Mediaset Italia. Tempt yourself with a brand new season of Temptation Island. Take in the wonders of history and nature with docuseries Freedom. Say ciao to a best-of edition of Italy's favorite primetime entertainment show, Ciao Darwin. Plus, new drama Mazzantonio premieres July 21st. It's about an investigator who tracks down the missing and who was once a missing person himself. DirecTV has the Italian TV you love. Get Mediaset Italia a la carte for $10 a month plus taxes or Italian Direct Package for $20 a month plus taxes. Visit directtv.com slash mediaset or call 1-877-912-2702 to learn more and to subscribe. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. 
All programming is subject to change. For new customers' equipment lease, activation, early termination, equipment non-return, and other charges and restrictions apply. Call 1-877-912-2702 or visit att.com for full details. So let's talk about the Stockholm. Yeah. Because the Stockholm is the Swedish ship, a Swedish ocean liner that collides on this foggy night with the Andrea Doria and uh, motorship. Mm-hmm. Motorship. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and the Stockholm survives, right? It, it goes on to yes. um, a, a full career. As a matter of fact, it's been rebuilt now and, and it, it's yeah. the older seaworthy <laughs> ships still out there. Well, actually, it just went up for auction recently. But the last I heard, nobody had bought it. It doesn't sound like a lucky purchase to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the Swedish ship, the Stockholm, collides with the Andrea Doria. And it's the Andrea Doria that, that obviously sinks and suffers this fate. Yeah. And from the perspective of the international media, this was also, again, an issue of sort of Italian pride, right? Because the initial assessment, probably unfairly, was that somehow the error had been on the part of the Andrea Doria. but in later years, the science, the will to really explore what happened, uh, and I think probably a lot of work from survivors like yourself to really get to the bottom line, they did decide that it was sort of a mutual mistake, right? The communications on the Stockholm weren't uh, performing the way they should have been. This was not an Italian mistake here, right? I mean, that, but that was the initial reaction. It went back and forth. You're right. And then I became one of those people who, who believe that for many, many years. So let me just say very quickly what happened then. We went to, we got to New York and um, we were supposed to have a trial, right? And that would be the right thing to do. Well, we had pre-trial hearings for four months. So from September, four months on, we had these um, pretty much ludicrous pre-trial hearings. Um, the Italians were blamed for everything by the Swedes. And uh, Captain Kalamai was a very stoic, too proud of a man to speak up for himself. He didn't know English. The Swedes, and I'm talking about the Swedes, on, on the, uh, not just the Swedish people all over the world. I'm talking about the ones on the Stockholm, the officers. They knew English, some of them, and the, the translation was very poor. Captain Nordensen kept feigning illness and went to the hospital. So we just had every possible disadvantage in the court. What was amazing uh, and kept the truth from ever coming out until I got a hold of it, I'd like to think, is that uh, the ships, both of them, were insured by Lloyds of London. They had the same insurer. Mm. So while the survivors were putting in their claims for, you know, criminality of loss of life, for loss of possessions, the millions of, um, you know, claims were mounting. And Lloyds of London obviously was thinking, oh, my gosh, we better cut this real short because otherwise we're just going to be paying more millions So in an office in London, they decided there was no way of discerning who was culpable. They were going to call it a non-judgmental decision, and uh, the truth would come out later, and uh, we'll just settle right now. So a very brilliant attorney found a loophole, 
that uh, showed that uh, perhaps they could compensate us not by what was claimed, but by the worth of the ships in their post-collision and sinking state. So you can imagine that over $100 million in claims would be greatly reduced. They were reduced to $6 million. So that was divided among all of us who had lost family, who had lost our lives, uh, life savings, et cetera. And that was about 1,660 survivors from the Andrea Doria, and 46 people lost their lives that night. That is correct. Um, it was very, very tragic. Uh, I shouldn't say completely correct in that uh, 43 lost their lives immediately. They were Their cabins were washed out to sea. Wow. Um, yeah, they were just lost immediately. They were 43 passengers, not crew, but passengers. Passengers, correct. And then uh, three died later of injuries, including my playmate, Norma Zisandro, the three-year-old that I swam with in the pool. Wow. Her parents were so frantic to throw her into a lifeboat. They said, catch the girl. But before the crew down below in the lifeboat could stretch out the blanket to catch the girl, he lunged her over the side of the Andrea Doria. She hit her head so hard on on the the dental. And um, and then the helicopter came and picked her up and uh, she died of, of that injury. I think it was in Boston. Wow. Um, there were many, many stories like that. I mean, some stories were just so incredible, like Liliana Duner, a war bride. She was with her two-year-and-a-half-year-old daughter and in a part of the ship that no lifeboat could see, especially in the dark. And she was desperate to get off the ship. Fortunately, she was a good swimmer and diver. We used to always watch her dive into the pool. She did the most desperate thing. She tied a rope around Maria, her little girl's arms, and she dangled her as lure on the side of the ship so that the lifeboats could see her and come her way. Well, before that, the little girl raised her arms, mama, mama. She was so scared in the dark and uh, she fell into the ocean. Iliana Duner, who was dressed with a purple slip from her torso down, that was all she had on, uh, dove into the black ocean. And the first time she tried to find her, she couldn't. She kept diving until she brushed up against something and it was Maria. So she saved her daughter. And then as she was swimming toward a lifeboat far away, she saw a young lady, a teenager, holding onto a rope on the side of the ship, frozen to jump into the water. And uh, she convinced her to, to just jump down. So she put Maria on her back. She held on with her arm to the teenage girl and they swam to the lifeboat. The stories of courage, but the most amazing one, I have to tell you this one, because it's truly a miracle. There was a New York Times correspondent on the ship in first class, the Chanfarras. And uh, 
Camille Chanfara and his wife Joan were in one cabin. Their two daughters, uh, seven and 14, Joan and Linda, Joan was uh, seven, Linda 14, were in the next room. When the Stockholm penetrated at full speed, as if like 200 missiles had been calibrated to hit at once the hull of the Andreadoria. And that piercing of the bow of the Stockholm, which was reinforced to go through icy waters to the North Sea, penetrated Linda and Joan's room. Linda was in, on her bed writing in her famous autograph because the family was prosperous and she had met a lot of famous people and had this autograph book. Something amazing happened. She woke up, became aware of the fact that she was, she had no ceiling over her head. And she told me when I interviewed her for my book, she said, I couldn't figure out why there was stars and a moon up above. And she kept crying for her parents. And she was speaking Spanish because they had lived in Spain. The only Spanish-speaking sailor on the Stockholm came to her. And she said, isn't this the Andrea Doria? And he said, no, you're on the Stockholm. She had been catapulted on her mattress, actually, onto the crumpled bow of the Stockholm. And there she was dangling on the bow of the Stockholm. And she had some broken limbs, but otherwise she survived. Wow. She's called the Miracle Girl. What happened to the rest of her family? Well, Patrick, um, this is so hard for me to, to say, but um, her father was killed almost immediately in brutal, brutal circumstances. Um, the mother was severely injured, and but she lived, and um, she died on one of the anniversaries of the Andrew Doria because she, would, she couldn't handle remembering what had happened. And... Um, Joan, who was in the bed next to her sister, Linda, died immediately. Wow. You know, these kind of stories, I, I don't think, um, I don't think they're in the popular conception of this ship, particularly because the survival rate was high and because the, the crew was lauded for how well they handled everything. And uh, over the course of history, you know, yeah. they, they were, I guess you'd say, vindicated. But you go on to your immigration, your mother, your life in, in Michigan, Detroit area, but you've written your book, a very important work that really gives a different perspective on the experience. And frankly, you and, and many of the survivors, as I understand it, have worked together to preserve the legacy of the experience, the tragedy, but also these kind of stories, right? The stories of the people who can't tell them themselves. So tell us a little bit before we go, first of all, how can our listeners find your book and why have you made this legacy such a central part of your life's work? What are you looking to, to share with the world? What are you looking to preserve and pass on? Well, that's probably the most important question. Thank you so much for asking that. I, um, I was going to do a book on survivor stories like mine. And I ran into a sea captain at some point who had uh, all the science 
behind the accident. And it's in a computer simulator at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, New York. And he told me what had really happened. I had no idea. The survivors I was interviewing had no idea. Now, they had all read books like the one from the first one, Alvin Moscow, who had no science behind it, who was hired by uh, the Swedish government or Swedish-American line, I'm not sure, to live there for 18 months on their dime with his wife and uh, publish a book on what happened. But they didn't have the science. So here I ran into a man who told me what had really happened and that they could prove it with this computer simulator at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. And what was it? What really happened? So... What we saw from the computer simulator, what we learned really happened is that the captain of the Stockholm, Captain Nordensen, he was in his cabin and he put a third officer in charge, who was about 24 years old, 26, Karstens Johansson, in charge of the ship while the Nantucket lightship, the meteorological ship that was alerting the weather conditions was saying thick fog, thick fog, thick fog all day long. And here was the captain in his cabin and Karstens Johansson manning the ship alone with a radar that was so antiquated that it did not even have a light inside of it. And he had the young man who was at the helm Uh, He testified in court that he was bored, he was disinterested, and so he wasn't paying attention, and he was yawing his ship, the Stockholm. Every three to four degree yaw could have thrown off the radar that they had by 50%. Wow. So it could have been a 50% error. The young man, I think 19, in the crow's nest, was not paying any attention. This was testified in court. So it was basically this poor, young, inexperienced Karstens Johansson on the deck, you know, in control of the lives of all those people on the Stockholm. Now, it was definitely discerned that they were traveling. The Stockholm was traveling in our lane. Now, I bet Karstens Johansson didn't even know that because he kept saying, well, the, the Andrea Doria was, was approaching on our right. It was never on the right. It was partially due to the, the yawing that was throwing it off. And the fact that he didn't know that he had been traveling in our lane, in the westbound traffic lane all that time. Well, he was working very hard. He was actually... I feel sorry for him. He's never admitted to the error. He just died a few years ago, never admitted to it, but he couldn't do that job by himself. It was the captain who was sleeping on the job. It was said that he was a heavy drinker. We can't prove that, Um, but he was the one that was sleeping on the job. So here, what happens is, the Andrea Doria is in its lane. And so from Captain Kalamai's perspective, he saw that there was a bleep 
on the right side. And he thought, well, that's strange. It should be on our left side, but it was almost a mile apart. And he thought, you know, we're getting too close, you know, for me to make a, a turn, get on the other side of the ship, get in my right lane. He thought, okay, we'll just stay here. We'll keep an eye on the bleep. And Giannini, the first officer, all of a sudden said, Captain, they're getting closer and they're coming our way. And then he saw a really hard right turn on the part of the Stockholm. The captain decided that it would be better to take a hard left turn, keep the engines going full speed, rather than following the maritime law that said you should turn right in situations where you could crash. Well, if we would have done that, naval experts said that we would have cut the Stockholm in half. Wow. So he knew that there was a law called in extremis, that in extreme situations, you are allowed to turn the ship as needed. But because he was Italian, because it was so easy to blame Italians because of the stereotype, especially post-World War II, right? Mussolini, the mafia, uneducated immigrants, etc. They decided that um, it was going to be, you know, the, the captain's fault because he turned left. Thank God he turned left. He saved our lives. But we kept moving because of the strike of the rampage to the hull of the Andrea Doria, we kept moving forward for a mile or two with the Stockholm's bow one third into our ship, one third, okay? Wow. Made a gigantic hole, and the inexperienced third officer on the Stockholm thought, oh my God, I got to put this in reverse. Well, what's going to happen when you put a ship impaled into another ship? in reverse and tear it apart exactly so it tore us apart like a jackhammer gone wild and as the our ship was going forward and the other ship impaled within us it was tearing all of the starboard side portholes and the hull and it tore open the fuel tanks the uh compartments that were supposed to keep us afloat we were doomed. We were doomed right from the beginning. And it was the, the Ansaldo shipwright who built the ship that is to be thanked for building a ship that stayed afloat for 11 hours so that all of us could get off with all of that damage. That's miraculous. Miraculous. Pierrette, I have to say, I wish our listeners could actually watch you as you're telling this story because... <laughs> You are such a good storyteller. I am there with you right now as oh, you're doing it. You. I think that you are giving such a gift to our listeners and to anybody who wants to learn more about the Andrea Doria just by the expertise that you have in the storytelling of it because it's your own life event that you've lived. But at the same time, too, you're able to tell it in such a way that we can all be there with you. I, I'm sitting here completely mesmerized by you telling the story and the service that you've done by actually getting the research taken care of and speaking to these maritime experts. I'm completely impressed by it because you're helping to write 
a historic wrong just by the work that you're doing. I can't thank you enough. These stories should go into history books. So thank you for saying that because it's our our Italian story of how we have been lynched, we have been wrongly accused. This is huge, the way the politics was so easy to twist so that we could be blamed. We were wrong by the fact that we were Italians. Captain Calamai became the scapegoat of the entire incident by the fact that he was Italian. And guess what? Do you think the Italian government stood up for Captain Calamai? <laughs> no. no, they remain silent. This is what we have to teach our kids. We need to speak up. Well, you've certainly done that with the book, Alive on the Andrea Doria, The Greatest Sea Rescue in History. It's available anywhere that books are sold, anywhere you get your books. You can certainly find it at I Am Books in Boston. Reach out, track down a copy of this wonderful book. It's part personal recollection, part historical research, and, and really solving the mystery. So, Dred, you've done a fantastic service to all of the survivors in that confraternity with you and for our community as well and sharing the story that was so central in the lives of people's identity around their Italianness in this country in Italy in a very crucial period uh, of the immigration story. So from all of us here, thank you for doing that. Well, I, I thank you for saying that. And may I mention my film? <laughs> sure. Yes, please. We didn't even talk about the film. Yeah. Uh, from the book, Alive on the Andrea Doria, the greatest sea rescue in history, I made a docufilm. I started this international project with no experience in filmmaking, driven by the passion of writing a wrong, like, like Stephanie said, changing history. I wanted to change it in a big way so that more audience could see it. It's called Andrea Doria, Are the Passengers Saved? Do you know why I called it that? No. Those were the last words of the captain on his deathbed. He checked himself into a hospital, completely depressed. He had always been depressed because the the scientists who had gone to Genova to show him all the data that he had been innocent uh, did not reach him. He died two months before they got there. So um, he was laying on his deathbed and he said, are the passengers saved? So that's what I call my movie. And uh, it's gone throughout the country. It's gone through three countries, Canada, U.S., and Italy. Um, it's avail- available on Vimeo.com. But my um, <laughs> claim to fame in the last uh, few weeks is that uh, it won a huge award in my region of Italy, um, the Piemonte at the Asti International Film Festival. Ah, goody. Yes, we won Best Director Award. Luca Guardabascio, um, my Roman director, who's just a, a wonderful person, he and I would love to see a feature film or a TV miniseries on this so that the story does not just dim away. Well, we're certainly going to link it from our show page, uh, the Vimeo video, and make sure everybody sees it. And we'll link the book as well. And you've done a lot of uh, wonderful work to make sure that this story survives. So we're proud of you as an Italian-American and and grateful for your contribution to our story and and telling this important chapter of it. So hopefully everybody out there will take a look, get the book, 
go out and see the film. I'm sure it's going to be an amazing experience. If it's anything like this conversation, it's going to leave you in uh, in chills and, and really at a loss for words, which with this crew is a, a high praise because we're rarely at a loss for words. So I hope everybody's enjoyed and hopefully we can do our little part in sharing Pirette's story and, uh, and getting this out to the next generation. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Your life to be great. See that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano.